This is a HeadGum Podcast. Universal FanCon is a brand new convention coming to the Baltimore Convention Center in April of 2018. FanCon will be a round-the-clock event featuring comics, cosplay, gaming, celebrity guests, music, and more with a focus on diversity and inclusion. Get your tickets now at UniversalFanCon.com because geek is universal. Hi, everyone. I'm teaming up with the website Rewire.News to explore the intersection of their work and mine on a brand new podcast called Get It Right. On Get It Right, we explore pop culture through the lens of justice, and particularly reproductive justice. I'll be talking to critics and creators about comics, movies, TV, music, anything is fair game. You can find it now on iTunes or Stitcher, to search for Get It Right or Rewire. Give it a listen and drop us a review with any ideas for what you'd like to hear us cover. See you soon. Hi, I'm Vincent Jerome and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds podcast. This is Raleigh Ritchie, a.k.a. Jacob Anderson aka Grey Worm from Game of Thrones and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds podcast Hey this is Sam Benjamin star, writer and producer of superhero web series The Few and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds podcast My name is Reggae Jean Page I play Chicken George in Roots and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds podcast Hi I'm Kyla Fry I'm an actress and being the change that we want to see and I'm here with Black Girl Nerds listen in my name is Idris Elba, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi guys, I'm John Boyega, and you're now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Enjoy, Black Girls Rock. episode 131 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Roundtables and Panels. Several segments. In our very first segment, we go back a little further over at San Diego Comic Con, if you can recall. We have an interview with the cast of the new CW series Black Lightning. The show's coming up soon, so this is an opportunity to get a refresher course on some of the talent and the story behind this new show. Journalist KB is featured in this roundtable interview. In our next segment, we go back to New York Comic Con. That's right. In this one, I actually sit down with the cast and crew behind the new Amazon Prime show called Jack Ryan, based off of the Tom Clancy novels. In our next segment, Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. 
You may remember from episode 130, where we did a roundtable interview with the cast and crew. Well, this time, we're listening to them on a panel. And in our final segment, we are saving the best for last. The name of this panel is Black Heroes Matter, and it's moderated by Isabella Price. And I just want to say, this is one of the most interesting panels I've ever listened to on this podcast. So please, sit back, relax, play it all the way through, and enjoy episode 131 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. It's called Roundtables and Panels. Nafisa Williams is an actress most known for her 2011 role as Nicole Gordon in the Meek Mill film Streets. Her 2011 film is Deanna Forbes on the ABC soap opera One Life to Live and her 2016 role as Dr. Charlotte Peel on the CBS drama Code Black. Currently, though, you can see Nafisa as Anissa Pierce in the 2017 Mara Brock-Akil and Greg Berlanti series called Black Lightning. She's also playing the role as Jade in the 2017 Mark Frost-David Lynch Showtime series Twin Peaks. Christine Adams is an English actress known for such TV series as My Family, Doctor Who, Pushing Daisies, Heroes, and Nip Tuck. In the new CW series Black Lightning, she plays the role of Lynn Pierce. Yeah, we really don't know what's going on. I'm not lying. I want to say that. (laughs) But have you you read any of the comics? And and I just want to know because the Outsiders play a huge kind of role. I just finished the Outsiders like last week. So and I know they put all a few of the volumes in one book. Right. So that was really cool just to see the dynamic and the relationship between my father and I and me wanting to join this universe. And he's like, listen, that's not what I want for you. Me just having a mind of my own. And I just love how powerful she's just a force of her own thunder. And um, I mean, I'm learning from her. You know, she stands up for what she believes in, and, and you know, she's ready to fight the crime and the injustice that's going on. So um, the Outsiders was dope and helped me as an actor to understand a lot of who she is and a lot of what's going on in this world. Right, and why she's doing what she's and why doing. she's doing. Yeah, what she's and, doing. and she's just so passionate about wanting to help and to save the world and to save the community. I'm like. stay true to what we see in the book but I again I don't really know what's, what's really going on I mean like, 
Let's just make sure she's hot. Right. <laughs> is it something you hope for, though, because there's so few queer women of color in media represented? You know, again, I just want to stay true to, to the story of Black Lightning into that world. And if that's what that world is, then I'm going to commit to it and, and go all the way. <laughs> Have you been much of a comic fan? You know, when I was a kid, and I'm talking like elementary, I, I would read comic books. Not so much after that growing up, but once I moved this, like I've been like addicted. I've been reading, I mean, I went back to 1977. <laughs> is there ever a sense of like nervousness to kind of take on something like this? I mean, was it just kind of like, yeah, whatever, it's just a job. See how it plays. You know, I think if anything, because I know how it feels to be a fan of a book or of, of you know, a, a, like a, a book, because that's what this is. This is a comic book. It's a comic story. So I think if anything, I just want to stay true to who, you know, you guys know Thunder to be and, the, and fans of, of Black Lightning, what they know her to be. I think I just really want to stay true to that. But Mara and Celine, they got that under control. They're dope. They're going to be very authentic to the story, very authentic to black families in general. And, um... Just doing a lot of studying and making sure I do my research and watching a lot of the actresses who played superheroes before me, you know, bringing my own flavor to it. But I think it's something that I can borrow from, from them. So, a little pressure. So, tell us a little bit about your character's relationship with her sister. Because I think that's going to play a huge role. And obviously, like, you know, your father's very protective of both of you. But your yeah. sister's a little bit younger. She's kind of getting into her powers at a different stage than you did. So, like, and I'm very protective that. over her, myself right. being the oldest yeah. sister. Um, just, just you know, you'll see that sister relationship that you see in your families, you know, and um, just wanting to protect her and maybe um, just school her on things that I went through before. And, and, and again, just having that family dynamic and, you you know, you'll see us go through, you know, family issues like we all do in, in real life and on TV, you know, and solve those issues and get through them together. But, um... We have a really good relationship in real life, so I'm just really excited. Like, she's my little sister from the day we met at the audition. I, we were obsessed with each other. So I'm sure that'll translate on screen and, you know, just, just showing us going through the world of this, this, this universe and doing it together. So that'll be cool. What, and, what you, you, uh, and you mentioned pulling some inspiration from some previous superheroes. What, is, what are some of them, and what other inspirations do you pull from, from your personal life or maybe from other forms of media that you pull into embodying your character? I've been watching, like, okay, so Wonder Woman, how dope is she? I've been watching Catwoman, I've obviously watched Supergirl, so again... Wanting to bring my own flavor, but just watching how they maneuver within their world and uh, just strong women. And again, just bringing that strength of who I am as a woman. I have a lot in common with Anissa. She's very strong. She's very determined. And I just try to bring some of those you know, qualities of myself into her. Great. And then one last question. What are you most excited about for this whole experience? I'm ready to suit up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. I'm so ready. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. So Thank have you. a good one. Matching hairstyles. <laughs> I know, you're so free, aren't you? Yeah. Free, I know. And it's so funny because actually every... We'll just need to talk about this for a second. Yeah. Every black woman that I see comes up to me and goes, I love your hair. You're free. Because yeah. they know. Yeah. We know. Yeah. Okay. It's got that Three hours. hours. Yeah. yeah. Time. Right. And plus money. <laughs> so your character. He's like, just stop. Can I just give you a high five? <laughs> Yes. Uh, your family unit basically still together, you know, even though they kind of split. So 
Yeah. Is that kind of a change of pace from what we've seen of superhero families but they're not really together? I mean, I think what's special about it is that it's, it feels more real than what we've seen. I mean, this idea of this kind of perfect family that kind of has it down and has it all together, I think is ridiculous. I mean, it, like in real life, People are human, they make mistakes, marriages fail, you know, kids get into trouble. That's that's the way the world is. So I think actually what we've got feels a lot more rooted in a reality and I think that's what's quite special about it. So how is it you know, your character doesn't have powers? I don't. But you are in a family full of superheroes. Mm. So when do you first find out about Jefferson's powers? Like is it while they're dating? Yeah, you know, so I get married. Mm -hmm. So they've, they're, they're sort of high school, college sweethearts, and that's when she first sort of realized he has this superpower. And she's one of the only people that knows about his secret identity. And I think, you know, what she does is, you know, she's very nurturing and she's very grounded, but also she doesn't want to be a widow. And if your husband's going out every night and fighting crime, then he may not come back. So that's ultimately what separates them originally and then kind of what ironically brings them back together or certainly makes him go back to his crime fighting is the, these two children who also have superpowers and um, and they're young so it's kind of like well we need to teach them how to use those powers because if you have a gift or a power you know do you use your power for good do you use your power for evil so it's like again it goes back to this real this real life situation of like how do you navigate that how do you navigate you know you do one thing you want your children to do another like do I want my children to be actors you know, it's like, do you know what I mean? Like, so it's really, this is what, this is, it's what we're all dealing with, you know? Like, how do I, what, what do I put out in the world? Am I a good person? Am I a bad person? You know, like, I, I think that's the thing, like, it's very universal themes. Are Jefferson yes. and Lynn, when they come back together, come back together as parents? Or yes, as parents. As parents. There's a lot of love there. There's a lot of respect there. You know, obviously, they've got these two incredible children. And there's definitely going to be, I think, a lot of, like, will they, won't they? I think that's going to be a big, you know, draw for the, for the audience. Certainly the mums and dads watching, I think. Um, but, yeah, there's still, there's a lot of respect there, you know? And um, the only reason that she sort of didn't want to stay in the marriage is because he kind of had an addiction to being a crime fighter. So, you know, you could replace a crime fighter with gambling or alcohol, like whatever you want, that's what's going on. And I think that's, it's very difficult. You love someone so much, but you see them doing something that could really hurt them. So it's all there, like it's all in there. And then you've got this amazing level of three superheroes in one show. I mean, you're not gonna get bored, are you? <laughs> So I'm, I'm going there, you know. So I, I relate to, to Lynn on so many levels, being a working mum, being a black woman, um, having children and, and trying to sort of raise them to be decent and give them a good moral compass. I mean, that's where I live. That's where I'm living right now. So it's not hard for me to, to get there. Thank you so much. 
Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan is a reinvention of the famed and lauded Tom Clancy hero, a character who has been portrayed in feature films by various Hollywood actors. The series follows an up-and-coming CIA analyst thrust into a dangerous field assignment for the first time as he uncovers a pattern in terrorist communication that throws him into a center of treacherous stratagem with a new breed of terrorism that threatens destruction on a global scale. An Amazon Prime exclusive series, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan is an action-packed spy thriller that will keep the audience on the edge of their seats through every twist and turn. The following interview features executive producer Carlton Cuse, executive producer Graham Rowland, and actress Abby Cornish. I like how they have us like away from the table, like, you know, just like, don't get too close. Okay. I'm... I'm Abby Cornish. I'm Graham Rowland. I won't talk about low. <laughs> if you do, I'm going to talk really high. <laughs> so, Carl, could you introduce us to the show and what, what about uh, Jack Ryan that brought you to, to be showrunner? Uh, you know, I, I think what excited me, I was just a fan of the Jack Ryan novels. I'd read eight of them, probably just as a fan, and I, I love the world and the idea of going being able to make a limited series and tell that a Jack Ryan story across eight hours felt like a really great opportunity. You know, there are these huge books. Most of the Jack Ryan books are like 800 pages. And, I mean, they're, they're literally, they're like, they're like weapons or doorstops. And uh, you can't tell that story in a two-hour movie. So the movies are great, but they're really condensed. In, a, in an eight-hour story, we were able to really... I think achieve what Tom Clancy did in his books. Although Graham and I created an original story, it's very much has all of the hallmarks of what I think makes Tom Clancy special. And you know, we we basically made an eight-hour movie. We had the money and the resources from Amazon to make a big, sprawling international um, action thriller. Um, Abby, we've seen several versions of Captain Miller in previous films. I thought what? you said several emojis. I was like, <laughs> I need to see them. I would love to just like pop them we out today. We need some Kathy Mueller yeah. emojis. <laughs> That's one hundred percent true. Just all emojis of the whole cast. Let's make it happen. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've seen different iterations of her yeah, yeah, yeah. movies. What makes uh, this version of Kathy different than what we've seen before? Um, I mean. I'm, that it's now, it's present to today's world. I think this is a very contemporary series. It, it, it feels like it's happening right now. It is happening right now. And so in terms of that, you've got a, a, a contemporary version of Kathy Mueller. Um, I'm not sure that there's anything else outside of that that defines her story-wise. In Series 1, we come in at the very beginning of their relationship, so they meet in Series 1 and they date, and towards the end decide, well, actually, we shouldn't give you a give away the ending, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, but you get the point, right? Um, and, you know, she, of course... Meeting and dating leads to... Unknown. <laughs> <laughs> To, and, and also, too, because in, in the first series they're dealing uh, at some point with infectious diseases, obviously her 
her intellect and her expertise in that area come in here. Meeting and dating leads to infectious diseases. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. Like Kalkus. <laughs> no, but I mean, Kathy, um, they're not married in our story. So, for instance, in the starting right out from Hunt for Red October, the very first Clancy book, you know, Kathy Mueller and, and Jack Ryan are a married couple. And mm-hmm. we are picking them up when they sort of are. They're, they're meeting and they, they start their relationship which felt much more dynamic to us mm, and more suitable to the timeline of where Jack Ryan is yes. too right the age yeah. that he is in the, in the, in the series Amazon's been, I just well, jumped yeah. on that one. Oh, um, Amazon's been incredible to work with actually and what I really enjoyed from the beginning was a sense of freedom and creative freedom. I think they're really on the edge of bringing so much entertainment uh, that is, 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 is contemporary to use that word again but also has a real sense of creativity, edginess, they're fearless and I feel like they are wonderful collaborators. Um, they're accessible and easy. To, you know, I I had many direct emails and, and discussions, and and also um, they're fun to work with as well. Yeah, they've been great. Kind of piggyback off the Amazon question. Do you find that having it on Amazon gives you more flexibility as creators to tell this story, um, especially specifically because it's an episodic format? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, as Carlton said, we can do a lot more in eight hours than we can do in a two-hour movie. So we can expand the world. We can spend time with other characters that aren't Jack. Um, But also, just the streaming format is very novelistic. And so it feels very much like a book that you can't put down. Hopefully, when when you read one chapter, you have to go on to the next chapter. So I think that was very exciting about doing it at Amazon rather than a traditional network. He's smart. Like, you know, it's tough to find a guy who's both smart and also believable as an action hero. And this character has to evolve from a guy who you believe is actually sitting at a desk uh, in the, um, the, basically the terrorist finance uh, and arms division of the CIA writing reports and doing analysis and then can end up out in the field and be believable in action sequences and you know I think John completely pulls that off. What was he like to work with? Yeah it was, it was so much fun to work with John. He's incredibly well prepared and very professional and at the same time he's really fun on set and you know he, he loves to improvise before a scene and even towards the end he'll or you know until someone calls cut he'll keep going um, and he has a really wonderful range so you know from the serious scenes to the lighter scenes particularly I I feel like for me because I was playing the girl that he was interested in a lot of our scenes were lighter in comparison to the rest of the series Um, the rest of the time he's at work and there's a lot of serious stuff going on or he's abroad and you know uh, there's a lot of action sequences so with Kathy it it gave gave, uh, him an opportunity with his character to lighten up to to kind of um, gush and be charming and all of these things which I think is also another lovely aspect of him to see in this world. Humanizes it? I mean he's human from the very start but who doesn't love like a tall, handsome, charming, funny, gorgeous, you know, I'm sure I could keep going on and on and on but you get the point right? I mean he's right there on the poster. Yeah. 
Abby, how much? Uh, can you give us a little more insight into your character, this version of the character? Were you involved in any of the action as well, or? And well, this is this is there's a, there's a little bit towards the end. I don't want to give away because it is in the later part of the episodes where things get very heightened. Um, there is a there's a very strong threat that enters uh, American soil. That, that, that is sort of looming. Um, and so my character, by nature of the fact that she is an infectious diseases doctor and that there is something to do with this going on in our world, um, she becomes a part of it. I definitely don't kick any butt. Uh, you not know, physically? No, not physically, just with a, through a microscope. <laughs> Yeah, very much so. I mean, that's, I think, was the hallmark of what Tom Clancy did, was, you know, his books were all geopolitical thrillers of the moment. So Graham and I uh, chose to tell a story about a kind of a uh, Islamic fundamentalist terrorist. But in the eight hours, we were also able to depict other positive portrayals of Muslim characters. And um, we have... We, we have kind of a range of storytelling in this sort of mosaic across these eight hours that I think hopefully will not only entertain you, but you'll leave having watched this with a, you know, a deeper understanding of what some of the causal roots are of Islamic fundamentalist terrorism. <laughs> this is dead silence. <laughs> Come on, guys. As it is episodic, no, I think it's more like, um, you know, we see this first season as like a book, just like a Jack Ryan book, you know, we'll, we'll tell a different story next year, and just like the Jack Ryan book, some of the characters, you know, the, char the characters carry over, but each, each season is a brand new story and a brand new adventure, so you take the same characters and you put them in a new story, so we just felt like we were telling a big eight-hour story, and you know, we the benefits of doing um, a show on streaming is you don't have the same imperatives of having to build to, you know, cliffhangers um, in the way that you do um, in episodic television. And, you know, it's great. I mean, when I was doing Lost, we used the cliffhangers very much as a stylistic device to build to those kind of five-act breaks. But, you know, in this show, we really just viewed it as like a kind of a big continuum. And the, the fact that they're divided into... I think the episodes range from like 38 minutes to like 64 minutes. They really move, they're, 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 they're a different length and they just kind of, where we sort of found a natural place to, to stop, we stopped and then we move on to the next episode. But they're, it, it was a very different and liberating process than the process that I was used to making television with act breaks. It's cool. All right, thanks you guys. Thank, thank, thank you. you. Our next segment is over at New York Comic Con, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. It's a panel featuring the cast and crew. Take a listen. How are you guys doing? 
how's your Comic Con so far? Yeah? Do we have some Wonder Woman fans in here? I think so. I think so. I am so excited to be here to talk to the cast writers and directors and to have all of you guys here, but Comic-Con wouldn't be Comic-Con if you didn't have exclusive, cool, new content, right? Yeah? How would you guys feel about seeing a brand new Comic-Con trailer for Professor Martin and the Wonder Woman? Yeah? That sound like a good idea? Alright, well let's take a look. to bring to the stage the actors and writer-director of Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. First up, please welcome Rebecca Hall to the stage. Comic-Con. You guys are so lively. It's fantastic. So true. I mean, I feel like the people up here have a lot to do with that and the fact that this film obviously tells the origin story, the real origin story of Wonder Woman. So I want to ask you guys all, what was your first intro to this backstory? Did you know or were you surprised when you kind of got the truth behind it all? I, I, I actually didn't know, know about it. I knew about it when there was a New Yorker article that there was a book that came out few years ago, I'd say. I'm not quite sure when, but I then went and read the book because I thought this sounds fascinating. And I was actually, <laughs> I was actually sort of desperate to turn it into a film myself. Um, and I didn't get very far because I heard that someone had been trying to make it for eight years. Uh, <laughs> so I said, fine, where's she and can I read the script? <laughs> so that was, yeah. Then I heard Rebecca Hall was interested in being in my movie and I raced, if I can like, got on a plane that night to Brooklyn. <laughs> I feel like that's an exaggeration, but like, not really, not really. I was like, she tried to wait cool in my movie. She's like, yeah, I'm told it's fine. I just she did. She's like, way cooler than this story. No, she was just like, I'm not it's true. Kidding. And what about for you, Luke? Um, um, yeah. Uh, I I didn't know it either. No. Um, it was only actually after reading Angela's script did I realize the true origins of uh, Wonder Woman and the people behind her and who they were. Um, I didn't believe it fully, if I'm honest. I had to go and do my own research to double check she wasn't uh, making any of it up. But she wasn't, it was true. Did you, doing that research, did you find anything in that research that you were like, Angela, oh, I really think that we need to incorporate this into the film because I read this or I found this piece of information? Uh, well, I think after eight years of, of making this uh, this script, what it was, there isn't much. Um, Angela hasn't scratched the surface and dug much deeper to find the, the gems of the story. And uh, so, no, not really. Um, what was wonderful is uh, working with a writer, director, as an actor, as always. For me, I think is a wonderful 
gift because you don't have to think, well, what the writer mean by this line or what, you, she's there, she's in the room, she's directing and so we could ask you directly. And so for me, I, I thought it was a, a great sort of fountain of knowledge on a daily basis, we had you there. And you know, you guys have mentioned the fact that obviously, Angela, you're working on this or trying to get it made for eight years. What was it about this story that initially drew you to it? And to make that commitment to say, okay, I'm gonna keep pushing at this, it's gonna happen. Um, I kind of started as a Wonder Woman fan. I was just, um, since I was a kid, because she was the only one, she was the only girl. And so a friend of mine knew that I uh, was super into Wonder Woman, and she gave me a book after I finished my first feature. And I read this chapter on the Marstons, and I couldn't, I literally couldn't believe their story, and I couldn't believe that nobody knew about it, and that this, there was this origin story at the, that had been kind of hidden from history. And so I became very determined to try to bring it to the big screen. But it was, uh, it took about four years, nights and weekends to um, write it in between TV jobs. And then another four years as like an indie filmmaker to get it to where you see it today. So I, I grew up loving Wonder Woman. My first memory is my mom was a teacher and she dressed up as Wonder Woman and went to school. And then my sister would run around in her Wonder Woman underwear. So I, of course, did all of those things as well. But hearing this story and finding out more about the origin, I feel like it gave me another level of appreciation for the character. 100%. Did you feel like the same thing for you? I did. I thought that there was this, this, what really struck me is how much love there was in their story and <laughs> all the stuff that they had to go through in order to be together. And um, it really resonated with me. And I think, and, how much it intersected with feminism. It just kind of hit everything that was really important to me, and so um, that's how it connected. And for you guys as actors, I feel like there's so many films that come to Comic-Con and they're just, you know, massive superhero blockbusters. It's so big. And then something like this comes along where it's a story about one of those characters that has such a huge fan base, but is a very, like, strong character-driven, very intimate, pun and no pun intended on that one, <laughs> intimate story. But did you guys think you'd ever get to be a part of a film that got to balance those two things so well? No. <laughs> no, it's quite, it's quite surprising to have a, you know, this, in, in many ways this film is a, is a, is quite a conventional love story about a very unconventional group of people. And the characters are fascinating. And the fact that it's, you know, the, the, like you said, the roots in feminism, and you know, I, I find personally really uh, optimistic that actually this is this is a, was a character that was created, you know, as as feminist propaganda for boys and men to respect female authority, and that's sort of incredible. So to bring it back to that, and to show it, and to tell a hopeful, loving exciting story and then to get to come to the place where people celebrate wonder woman i mean how many people how many people are actually in wonder woman costumes right now i feel like i can see four okay we got, we got like, one great. over here yeah that's right there we go no i mean it's it's thrilling it's really thrilling what about you luke did you feel like you sorry i've just mesmerized at the wonder woman costume <laughs> is that a dude yeah fantastic Awesome. Only in Comic Con. One of the most legit wonderful. Give the guy a spotlight, please. <laughs> Fantastic. Sorry, really, I've forgotten the question. <laughs> 
That's what Wonder Woman does. That's right. Only in Comic Con. Um, did you ever think you'd get to do a film where it was such such actor-driven small moments, but about this massive character? I mean, um, I, I, my journey as an actor has always been to find stories that you know in, inspire me and shock me and challenge me. And this was a script that did that from the second I picked it up. Um, I'm quite. <clears throat> I have a terrible habit of picking up a script and then reading a few pages and dropping off. <laughs> Falling asleep. And I'm gonna assume those are the ones I, that you don't. No, 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 no. I just have a terrible thing. When I read, I fall asleep. So I, it takes me days to read a script. And I picked this one up and I couldn't put it down. And every page I turned was even more of a revelation. And you know, when you come across characters like that who are fully fleshed out and colorful and, and real, these people were real. And I think that was the thing that drew me in. We were gonna tell a story that not many people know about um, and it deserves to be told because these three people were remarkable um, in the time that they, they they met and what they what they accomplished as a, as a family as uh, a loving unity um, they reared wonderful children and you know accomplished some incredible things so all in all it was um, it was a thumbs up I'm in and obviously hearing about their relationship you said it was very it really is just a love story and for all of you directing them and you guys getting into some of those emotional moments and scenes and conversations, how did you build that level of bonding? Because there has to be such a great level of trust between all of you guys, because I, I've gotten to see it. <laughs> and there's moments in there where it's just like heartbreaking. You really feel like you are in the middle of a relationship conversation that you shouldn't be looking in on, but you're getting this secret look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I'm the only boy on stage. <laughs> it's time for the DTR, Luke. <laughs> I'd say that my experience, it was kind of incredible because they hadn't, a lot of people um, comment on the incredible chemistry that all the actors have, which was it's truly amazing. Um, and they hadn't met before. Everybody's like, oh, they must have met. They must have known each other. They must have. And we had 25 days to shoot the movie. And they met at a um, a read-through. We did just the four of us, and immediately they just it, they just clicked. Like they came in with such a commitment to telling the story and such a kind of respect for the characters in the process. And the process of directing it, I I describe as like watching them fall in love. Like it's true. They just kind of which is kind of what you get to do in the film. Yeah, well. which is, you know, it's it's very much uh, a similar experience. I think we all we really fell in love with our characters as well. I think you could ask Rebecca, myself, or Bella, who isn't here today, but we all really liked the people we were representing. They uh, they were good, fascinating, inspiring people, and as a, as a, the polyamorous relationship part of it was something that I thought was a, a wonderful opportunity for us to present a part of society that isn't represented uh, often on, on the screen. And um, uh, so yeah, it was, a, it was a lovely thing. And I feel very proud to have um, represented the man that you know, created what we have now as uh, the female superheroes lasted how many years? 70, 75 years. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think, I feel like from the movie too, it, it definitely is, he created it, but not on his own. <laughs>
Um, so tell me a little bit about Elizabeth and getting into that mindset and making sure that that bond felt really real with all of you guys. Well, I think to add, I mean, I think a lot of it is in the, the script. It was on the page. I think, you know, I was really, I was really struck by Angela's take on this story because it's actually tremendously radical to tell a story about polyamory and that includes elements of BDSM and all this sort of kink and all this stuff on this spectrum and to not tell it in a way that is where that is the central element of the story and the problems of the relationship are internal like you know for example the wife is jealous or the husband made the wife do it or all the, th all the cliches that you'd assume but to actually tell it in an organic way that's about three people who have choice who have uh, that it's consensual who are loving who are empowered who are free and who are true to themselves it's it's an incredibly liberating sort of person to play <laughs> you know who is that willing to to to, to go the distance and go against societal norms in order to be true to themselves. So, you know, I found it, I found that kind of the in, in a way. And then the moment that you're in love with that, then it's sort of easy. And also I had tremendous respect for the people I was, I was working with. You know, I can't, I can't imagine another two actors playing the other, the roles and the, how we work together was just sort of magical. You don't get that very often. Um, and that was, so in that sense, it was sort of easy. <laughs> You're like, you know, we just kind of showed up and it was all there, which is, well, that, but that really is the magic of certain films. You see it and there's just, it's like lightning in a bottle. You get it or you don't. And this is one of the ones that I think the chemistry between all of you guys, it comes through the screen so beautifully. Um, so since I've already said I can see it, I feel like I want to give you guys another treat. So Angela, I think that you guys oh, have yeah. another little something. We have a scene for you guys um, from the film. go to Comic-Con. We have to go to New York. Um, this scene um, takes place when Professor Dr. Marston um, has written his Wonder Woman. Um, he has the idea and he's going to, a lot of you might know, MC Gaines, um, who was the man at the, it was National Highlight Publications at the time, what would become DC Comics. And he discovered Superman, and also was the um, discovered Wonder Woman, and brought her, published her. So this is the scene of Marston first trying to pitch MC Gates, played by Oliver Platt, who's tremendous. So good. Um, I've got a couple more questions for these guys, but while we're doing that, if you guys have questions, start lining up next to these mics because we're going to open it up to fan Q and A in a minute here as well. Um, just watching that clip, there's so many little, I've grown up reading comics, so there's certain moments in there where it's like, oh, the riffraff that you normally deal with, and just like jokes where I think true comic fans are going to laugh and be like, oh man, that's actually how people used to look at comics. Mm -hmm. Are there other moments that you were excited to kind of inject into the film, little Easter eggs, little lines here and there? Yeah, there's um, a bunch of Easter eggs throughout the film, and it was really fun for me to, I mean, there's the more kind of obvious ones that the lasso of truth, you know, can, like Marston, they invented the lie detector test um, together. And so that's a kind of direct correlation, but also their, the Marston's mutual lover and partner, Olive Byrne, used to wear silver bracelets 
which were modeled after the silver bracelet. So there's a bunch of stuff for fans. Um, one of the uh, kind of Easter eggs that not a lot of people catch, but for the true fans, is that during one of the scenes, Elizabeth is wearing a cheetah coat <laughs> for um, yes. the, the true fans. <laughs> I love it, I love it. Um, for you guys, what was your first introduction to Wonder Woman? Did you read the comics growing up, or was it a TV show, or what was your first intro to her? Ian, I will have a bad answer for this, which is why I'm sighing. I, I, <laughs> It just didn't reach me. It just didn't reach me. Didn't reach I, you. I, I knew who Wonder Woman was. Yeah, I mean, I was aware of Linda Carter on TV. You know, I was aware of Wonder Woman. Um, I got to it really late. I got to it when I found out about this origin story. You know what, though? You got to it, and that's what's important. I, I got to it, and now I won't stop. I mean, the film has really ended, and I'm still reading Wonder Woman comics. Like, I genuinely... Yes! <laughs> Now you're a Spotify fan. A comic convert. I think there's a place like a couple avenues over where you can get a ton of those to get me back. And Very similar. Um, I was I was an 80s child, and um, Linda Carter was Wonder Woman was on the TV in the UK. So that was my first introduction to to her and to the story. Um, and very much like Rebecca, once I knew about the origin story, I then, the more I, I read, the more I wanted to go and look at the comics, and, and, and actually the very early comics, because they really are, it's like the brainchild of, of Marston and the influence of his life that, yeah. were, that are in the comics. And the more you read, the more you, you wanted to delve back into these uh, incredible pieces of comic history. Yeah, and there's there's one scene in particular which we got to see in the Comic Con clip a little bit earlier, the very end, where Olive has kind of the outfit on it, silhouetted. What was that like for each of you guys to see it and to shoot it? Uh, she looked hot. She, she, <laughs> she looked I mean, really, hot. really hot. Yeah, Wonder she, Woman she worked. Is a beautiful woman. And Wonder Woman could have been blonde. She could have been blonde. I'm glad she's not. Yes. Sorry, all you blondes out there. <laughs> Um, actually, that was one of the um, scenes, the, one of the most pivotal scenes yeah. in the film is they um, go into, a sh there's this guy named Charles Guyette who ran a kind of underground kink uh, yeah, store um, for and provided the burlesque uh, costumes for a bunch of, um, uh, of the burlesque dancers in Manhattan in the 40s. And so they have a scene where they go and Olive first tries on the outfit, but it was, to me, the kind of um, signifier and the big unveiling of all of Marston's ideas and their relationship and how they're kind of pushing it to the next level. And so we really crafted that one moment with the backdrop and the costume to not be literal, but to have the same kind of evocative of that. I was so happy I was watching the film in a, in a screening in San Francisco, and this guy, I overheard him, that came up and he went, goosebumps! <laughs> and I was like, yeah! It's so true, that shot was the same thing for me. I was like, it's so, it was just shot so beautifully. It was stunning. What was it like for you on that day? Well, I know no one's seen the film, so I'm going to try not to... No spoilers. No spoil, but no they spoilers. definitely like, saw the, the shot. They yeah. saw the shot of her. Well, but the, the, the sort of reverse of that is that we are running through a curtain, and I'm, I'm, I'm surprised to see her. I'm not expecting to see her dressed up, um, which was pretty much 
how we shot it. I mean, I didn't really look until, I mean, it was sort of, you get it for free because I went through the curtain and did have a, oh. <laughs> did, Angel, did you use the first take? I, I know. think I did. No, I think I did. I think That's I did. Awesome. Because they really did have this reaction when they saw Bella once she, because I don't know, they were just shooting something else while she was getting ready. And so the kind of unveiling was pretty much captured. <laughs> so perfect. All right, you guys, so enough of my questions. Let's get into some of them. I, you guys, there's so many people lined up. Let's start right over here. What's your name? What's your question? Uh, my name is Travis Langley. I'm a friend of the Marston family. So this is actually very hard. Uh, now that trailer said based on, but you have a lot of promotional material out there that says the true story. So we're wondering where you got information such as no one we've ever spoken with who knew them knew the relationship between Betty and Dotsie to be sexual. If it was, that's fine. But where did you find proof that no one who knew them to our knowledge had? That's a difficult question yes. because um, I did talk to a source who um, said that that was her interpretation, who had studied them. Um, but it was, it's tricky because I don't know if, I chose to tell this story as my interpretation of the story. And I think that there's a lot of facts that are indisputable about the Marstons, and I feel like there's a lot that are open to interpretation. So as a filmmaker, this was my interpretation of their story. And I've been, I've reached out and we've kind of been talking um, with Christy Marston recently. So, um, and I think that she's, you know, I hope that we offered to show her the film and I hope that she will take us out on it. And I really feel like, to me, this was the story that was my interpretation that needed to be told. We'll go over here. Three questions. What's your name? What's your uh, name? Hi. <laughs> uh, my name is Jessica. Uh, I remember seeing the trailers, and I just want to thank you guys for showing like how healthy a polyamorous relationship can be. And um, I do have one question. Um, how does it feel like to play the people who inspired and created such a wonderful comic book series, and which later turned to uh, one of the best superhero films of 2017? It's quite brilliant that it all happens in one year, and yeah. um, you know, so that. The, the, the wonderful, you know, Gal Gadot has done such an incredible job with the, with the wonderful the film this year. And for us to be able to ride that wave of, of love that people have for this character and to, um, you know, show the, the story behind the, the, these people, you know, and their lives and who they were to the world is a, is a lovely thing. It's a great thing and uh, perfectly timed. Well done, Angela. <laughs> It's interesting, a lot of people are kind of saying, oh, you planned it to, do you know, like, perfectly, like, but it truly has been a long journey, and um, as an indie filmmaker, I had no idea if we'd even have distribution last, you know, October when we made it, so it's pretty cool to have it kind of converge. I do think there's a renaissance of Wonder Woman happening right now. <laughs> What's your name? <laughs> Hi, 
My name is Julie, um, and I'd like to thank you for showing a film of polyamory in a healthy standpoint. I wanted to know if for, if for you guys, it, what was your first introductory into polyamory, and, um, and how has making this film or reading this story changed your guys' view on it? Well, you know, I, I always think when I, when I read this script, which of course is Angela's interpretation, um, and her standpoint, but it's, there are things to suggest. Um, I was struck by, there are no words for things like polyamory, and there are no words for things like all the, these, for them, for the Marsdens. They're not sort of entering some dialogue about that. They were, in our version of it, they are, have, they are entering a relationship that feels natural and organic to them, that ends up involving three people as opposed to two. And, you know, I, so I sort of tried to think about it like that, because that's, that's as much information as Elizabeth would have. I mean, I find it extraordinary that the film, it doesn't, you know, deal with that so much as it deals with how are we going to live in the world, how are we going to pay the bills, how are we going to raise children, how are we going to survive as humans. Um, you know, they're not constantly sitting around talking about the dynamics of their threesome. It's, <laughs> you know, and I think that's, uh, I think I found that informative. But, you know, I'm also aware that for a community today who do have those words and do have those, nomen, you know, those, those names, this is a historical story that has to be respected and treated, you know, for, and it has to, you have to pay dividends to, to what, where we are now. Um, so, yeah, I understand it and I respect it and it's a community that needs to be represented as much as anyone else. So, you know, I'm behind it. <laughs> And I've been really gratified at the response. I spent many years writing through the L Word and um, consider myself a queer filmmaker. And I, I myself know the value of representation and the representation of all sorts of communities for race, gender, sexuality. So it was really important for me to tell the story in a very organic way. That was just about three people falling in love. What's your name? What's your question? Also, I'm like, is it Harley Quinn? What's the... Uh, I'm Loving. a gender-bent uh, comedian from Watchmen. Oh! oh. Yes. Fantastic! Uh, my name's Vanessa. My questions are Angela. Just wondered if you could talk a little bit about uh, female filmmakers who've had an influence on you, and also if you could make a superhero, like, fantasy, supernatural, sci-fi one of your own, who would you choose? Wow! Such good questions. Um, uh, which one? I'm <laughs> sorry, that's um, a lot. Um, actually, I just, um, uh, we just, with Terry Moore, I don't know if you know Strangers in Paradise, the comic. Anyways, uh, he's, uh, go read it if you do, thank you. Um, uh, which I'm adapting with him next, which is this beautiful graphic novel series that's been, um, yeah, do you know, you know. Yeah, I know that, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And um, what fantasy? It's interesting. I have a lot of opinions about Harley Quinn. And, um, so I think that also I would just Batwoman. I mean, yeah. right? Like so good, so good. Um, so I, I, you know, if they decide to make that one, I'm gonna be like banging on somebody's door. <laughs> 
Did you have any uh, female directors that inspired? Oh, you? female directors. Um, gosh, a ton. Actually, I have to give it up for Ava DuVernay right now, you know, because she is just doing so much for women, for people of color, and her activism is really intense and beautiful, and so that's going to be my shout out for today. Thank you. Right over here, what's Hello. your question? Hi. Hello. So I read uh, Jill Lepore's uh, book on The Secret History of Wonder Woman, which is terrific. Mm -hmm. And what I took away from, I was curious um, how you portrayed the relationship between Elizabeth Marston's wife and his other partner, Olive, because reading the book, and maybe I'm just being thick, um, it seemed like they themselves weren't intimate, and yet they lived together for 40 years mm -hmm. after Marston's death. So I was curious if your assessment was that they too were intimate in this threesome, or were they just two women who shared a man and greatly enjoyed each other's company? Um, that's interesting. My film's not based on the Jill Lepore book, so I definitely read it, and for some things, there's kind of two, two answers to that. One is I did a bunch of my own research and I kind of took from it what I thought, but also in the process of creating anything based on historical fiction. You collapse time and you locations and like inventing the lie detector took like way longer <laughs> than, <laughs> than it does in the, um, and the Marsons had this sprawling, incredible story, but to me what I had to kind of distill the story that I wanted to tell um, which came down to, I took a really deep dive into Marston's theories, and especially his book, The Emotions of Normal People. So I wanted to tell the story of their love story and to explore Marston's theories and how it kind of influenced and impacted the relationship and how all of that showed up at the pages of the Wonder Woman comic. And so um, I think you can kind of go back and forth debating some of the finer points, but for me as a filmmaker, that was um, what I wanted to do with the film. Thank you. Thanks. I think even for me watching it, you just kind of walk, the biggest takeaway for me was that the, the people who created this character were very focused on the fact that women are strong in whatever form that they come in, in whatever form that they take, in whatever relationship that they're in, and that's something that I think is always going to be true for Wonder Woman, that it's a character that is a strong woman, and no matter what form you're in, we all have Wonder Woman in us, guys and girls. Mm -hmm. Woo. <laughs> Love that. Well, so, can I just add something to that? I just think I think it's an it's an empowering choice to to, to it, you know to to say that these women didn't have a say in anything and didn't is one version, of course, but it's also a completely legitimate interpretation to say that women these women were into it. <laughs> and wanted to do this, and it was a choice, and I think that's feminist, so, you know. I was super, I'm still really blown away in that we just recently showed the film to Gloria Steinem, who um, endorsed it, and she gave us a quote that said, it's about loving rebellious people, and that the film is about truth and hope, and people who love each other, and that, I mean, she, I should add her to my list of heroes, because that was, I mean, in the in the in the intersection of Wonder Woman history and feminism, and just my personal heroes, that was like probably the biggest moment that's happened so far for me in this eight-year process. <laughs> What's your name? What's your question? Uh, I'm Brian from Long Island. That's fine. 
Um, thank you for making this film. I was really excited when I saw it coming out. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it, so thank you. Um, a lot of people who find out about this story because polyamory and kink are not necessarily mainstream, kind of turn it around and become more critical of Marston and his earlier work in Wonder Woman. So what would you say to those critics who um, think, well, he was just kinky and couldn't help himself putting in the tying up and the things like that, and the, you know. Um, so again, it's not me, I'm just saying, I know a lot of people do feel that way. So what would you say to those, that sort of idea? I do think that's one of the reasons um, that I, I mean, I initially wanted to write this film because I was actually really angry that there hadn't been a Wonder Woman movie. <laughs> and no, there have been multiple reboots of Superman, multiple reboots of Batman. I was like, how many times do we have to see Batman's, like Bruce Wayne's parents killed in an alley? Do you know, like just over, <laughs> over, over, over like, Wonder Woman is top three. Go anywhere in the world. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. So the only reason that there, in 75 years, has not been a movie is just misogyny. Like, there's no, there's no other reason. <laughs> and so I was like, why? And then I started delving into it, and I, and I came to the conclusion that it's because there are these kind of radical and amazing ideas at the core of who Wonder Woman is. So that was the kind of, you know what, I totally forgot what the initial question was, because <laughs> I got so on my... Um, what did you say to critics who think that... Oh, critics that think, but see, this yeah. is, I feel like a really, as a filmmaker, my, I kind of across the board, I didn't want to otherize their experience. I didn't want to say, oh, look at them. And the history of, Saying uh, showing any sort of kink um, in movies is pretty dismal, I think. And to me, it wasn't. I it was beautiful. And there's a dialectic in the film between fantasy and reality. So to me, the parts that where they're exploring their sexuality are about um, discovering their kind of truest selves, discovering fantasy, and then they're kind of thrust back into reality and the life, and it's about kind of living your truth. So I wanted to, I think it's a simplistic way to look at Marston, it's kind of an easy way to go, but I think one of the successes of the film is that it's not, and people told me, exploitative or gratuitous at all. All right, so we have time for one more question, um, and I feel like I've got to do this one because I've been eyeing your costume this whole time. Can we have Gaston come up? Yeah! <laughs> I, told, I told you we'd see one. You did. <laughs> he did. I was hoping I'd see I was. I didn't know you were going to be here, and I wanted this, and someone told me you were going to be at a panel, and I'm looking forward to this film, so I'm very excited uh, <laughs> to be here. Uh, my question is uh, actually for Angela. Uh, yes. Uh, sorry. Come on, man. Too bad. It's okay. He dressed like me, don't you? So. He didn't know what she was going to be wearing today. Exactly. I did. Next time you'll have to tweet out a picture. Yes. Um, as a as a, from one person of color to another and. Uh, LGBT person to another and a filmmaker to another. What advice uh, do you have for someone who ascribes to such labels going into the industry? Don't give up. <laughs> really, we need your voice. We need, uh, we need it out there. And 
I can say very honestly, nobody wanted me to make this movie. <laughs> um, until everybody did. Do you know what I mean? Like there, I banged on a lot of doors. I actually, it was dead in the water. And then actually my producer, Amy Redford, we were at a Montessori graduation of our kids. <laughs> and she was like, do you have any dead scripts? Like a dead script is something you can't get made. And I was like, yeah, I have this one called about the guy who created Wonder Woman, two women in his life inspired. And she was like, let me read it. And then I call it like this slow run where she just like, she got like the football and it was just this kind of like slow run. So, and then I decided I'm just gonna keep like banging at people's doors. And when they say no, you just, uh, you know, my mom says no is the first uh, step on the road to yes. So just keep going and speak your truth. Thank you very much. Channel your inner wonder woman. All right, you guys. Thank you all so much for coming out. Give them a huge round of applause. The film comes out on October 13th. I'm Tiffany. Have a great Comic Con, you guys. Thank you all for coming out. Black superheroes, Luke Cage to Black Lives Matter. Popular media has had a problem with the representation of black people for many years now, with the comics industry reflecting the same issues. But with the popularity of the Netflix series Luke Cage, the Black Panther comic, and the Black Lives Matter movement, the subject of characters on TV becoming an important topic of discussion. This panel discusses the roles of black characters on TV, how it reflects back to our everyday lives, and how it affects real life. As kind of as lightly as I possibly could, I didn't want to delve too deep into the history of it um, because it's it's it could get really deep and it could also get pretty depressing. So I feel it was like church. So I didn't want to get too depressing because, like, the world is already depressing enough. Uh, the history of black superheroes can get kind of dour, but I, I feel like, um, you know, really talking about what we've accomplished, what has been accomplished, the history that has been made, and the history that is yet to be made is kind of important. So um, I went back to the 1930s uh, and kind of, um, skipped over a, a lot of bullshit um, and uh, kind of did everything I could that would fit in an hour. And so I think we'll do um, about 30 minutes. My presentation's about 30 minutes long. And then uh, we'll go into 30 minutes of talk and uh, hopefully some more panelists will arrive. <laughs> they're probably, they're on the train, isn't that what people say? <laughs> that is, hey, that is a common lie. Excuse. That's a common lie, right? Oh, that's, that's what people say. Oh, that's legitimate. Great. Um, so maybe that's what will happen. Uh, but I'd also like to hear from you guys because this is the most uh, black and brown people I've been in a room with probably in the past 10 years, and I'm starved for black people opinion. And I know that black people have opinions. Even if you don't ask for them, I know y'all got them. I just want to hear them and soak it up before I go back to that melanin duplicit city of Seattle. 
and they just yeah. take all the. Oh, oh my. Okay. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you some soul food places in New York. If oh you my want. God, have you got soul food yeah, recommendations? I know a couple. Please. Oh. <laughs> Harlem? I'm staying in Harlem. So. Yeah. Okay, so then you know. Uh, Yes, I know. I was like, I'm playing. I'm doing a panel on Luke Cage, and I'm staying in Harlem. Shit. <laughs> yes. Um. Well, I'll go ahead and introduce myself. Um. So my name is Isabella L. Price, uh, and I'm a scholar. I'm a writer. I'm a filmmaker. Uh, I am a super nerd. Um. I'm a writer. I write for um, uh, Black Girl Nerds and. For myself and my mom, mostly, uh, <laughs> we're the only two that really read my writing. But uh, um, <laughs> listen, my my mom says I'm great. Um, so uh, so yeah, and uh, I'm a kind of a, a scholar of uh, black media, uh, queer media, but mainly my work is in horror movies. So this is also kind of like a side thing for me as well. Would you please introduce yourselves? I'm Nicole Homer. I'm a poet and writer and critic, and I'm an editor of Black Nerd Problems. Uh, I'm Valerie Complex. I'm a freelance writer. You'll see the majority of my work on uh, Black Girl Nerds. Uh, I have some stuff on Rotten Tomatoes as well. Um, I write about movies and uh, social commentary. Um, if you see my Twitter page, it's always on fire. <laughs> She's dope. <laughs> so, She's super dope. Um, that's it. And I'm Tatiana King-Jones, the EIC of fanbros.com. Fanbros Show is a brand that tries to focus on geek culture and pop culture from the perspective of people of color. We have a website, YouTube, so we do videos, we cover social media really heavy, and uh, we hope you guys check it out. It's really good stuff. Thank you. Um, and thank you guys for showing up. And I can't believe that it's standing room only. Oof. So good. Clap it up for you guys. Thank you. So to begin, um, I want to open it up by talking about this young man. Uh, his name is Darian Hunt. Um, I, I hope that some people recognize his face. Um, he died on September 10th, 2014. Uh, he was shot in the back uh, by police officers. He was dressed up in cosplay um, as Afro Samurai. Um, and the police saw him with a weapon. They thought that he, he was um, a, a a bad guy or they thought that he was violent and they uh, shot him and murdered him um, and so when people ask you know a lot of the time the discourse on the internet is like wh why does this matter right like why talk about what does it matter to talk about black superheroes why does it matter that spider-man's black why what do these things matter and I just keep thinking about Darian Hunt I just keep thinking about the fact that this young man was not seen as a hero that he died doing something that we all enjoy, that he was, that he's not here today, that he's not cosplaying anymore, that he's not reading comic books, um, because he wasn't viewed as a hero. 
um, that the perception of black people and people of color is so strong that even though you're dressed up as a superhero, you can still be seen as a villain. Um, and he paid for that with his life. And so um, I always dedicate uh, any sort of panels that I do about representation to the memory of Darian Hunt. Um, and that I'm sorry that he's not here today. Um, and this is why we do it. This is why it's important. So thank you, Darian. So I hope you guys recognize this person. Dwayne McDuffie says, uh, in comics, there's two kinds of black people. There's Shaft and there's Sidney Poitier, which I always think is like a really poignant way of <laughs> narrowing it down. In the early days of comics, most depictions of black people were of jungle men, tribal chief leaders, or disgusting racial stereotypes. Black people were never heroes or really even human beings, but glorified pets for white main characters. One of the earliest examples of this is Lothar from the 1934 comic strip Mandrake the Magician. Lothar was a tribal leader who left the opportunity to become king so that he could follow around Mandrake. And this is a really interesting trope. The tribal leader, tribal chief, tribal king who leaves their, their rule, who leaves their, their people in order to go and follow like white people or white man's um, uh, rules, which we'll come back to again. Lothar was the muscle to Mandrake's brain, a hulking assistant who barely spoke understandable English. This archetype would be the typical depiction of black men in comics for several decades. This sort of like inhuman strength, uh, stronger than human, more human than human kind of, kind of archetype. In the 1940s, com Timely Comics, predecessor to Marvel, had a character named Whitewash. This is fantastic, if you guys ever get to look this up. A buffooned up, big-lipped, illiterate character used primarily as comic relief. This character was in Tommy's Young Allies. I shit you not. This is what it looks like. Um, Timely's uh, Young Allies, he was in a group of kids led by uh, Bucky Barnes, uh, who's Captain America's sidekick, and Toro, who was uh, the Flaming Torch's sidekick at the time. Uh, this took me several readovers to read exactly what he was trying to say in this, and this is all he's ever, this is the speech that he uses in every single comic that he's in. Um, but in June of 1947, journalist Orrin Cromwell Evans and several other black writers started All Negro Comics Incorporated with himself as president. He wanted to use the medium of comics to further expose the community of black journalists to the world. In the mid-1947s, the company published the first and only issue of All Negro Comics. Now, this is the first, or this is the earliest example that I can find of black people publishing their own comic books, which is mid-1947s. A 48-page, 15-cent omnibus, standard-sized, glossy cover with a newsprint interior. So it was all black writers. They wrote um, article. They wrote comics on uh, famous people at the time, famous black people, and then also like adventure tales at the same time. Uh, Evans tried. And was, he was unsuccessful at publishing a second issue, but he was unable to publish the newsprint. There was also resistance from distributors who didn't know how to sell black people comic books, who was going to buy that. It's odd because this comes back up again in the 90s. 
especially um, they had uh, resistance from their parent, their con their direct com competitor, Parents Magazine Press. This is a white-owned company who went on to publish, oddly, a year later, um, two issues of this magazine called Negro Heroes, which was about uh, famous black people at the time, uh, only with an all-white um, uh, crew and all-white writers and artists. I wonder where they got the idea from. Uh, Fawcett Comics produced three issues of a comic book called Negro Romance in the 1950s and illustrated by, uh, I think his name is Alvin Hollingsworth, one of the earliest black comic book artists. He's, he's pretty prolific at this period. Uh, also, during the 1950s, uh, a debate arose in the Comics Code Authority. Do you guys know what the Comics Code Authority is? Have you guys ever heard of that? It's this thing that came up, which was like, it was like a group of people who decided that comic books were corrupting the youth of America, and so they decided that they were going to try to like censor what was being published in comic books at the time. One of the big things that happened um, was that editor William Gaines, uh, editor of Entertaining Comics, uh, had come up against the Comics Code for a comic book called D Judgment Day, which was a science fiction comic book. Uh, in this comic, an astronaut lands on a planet that is torn by a war between aliens of different colors. He ponders the futility of the groups whose only difference is their color is the difference of their color of skin in a bloody and, and violent conflict. Typical fare for science fiction until he takes off his helmet and it's actually a black man. This was, like, mind-blowing at the time. Like, for the whole entire comic book, this guy is, is talking about the allegory of why these aliens are fighting up against each other. They look exactly the same. The only difference between them is that one is, like, blue and the other one's red, and he doesn't get, get it. And then he takes off his helmet at the very end of it, and it's a black man. And it was so profound uh, that, and it was so, it made such a statement that the Comics Code Authority said, take it out censor it. It's, it's too controversial. It's like, this was like woke AF for this time period. Uh, and like, I read this, I read this, if, if you guys haven't heard of Judgment Day, if you guys haven't read it before, please do, because it's, it's, it's so, I don't know, what's a better word than woke? It's so woke for its time period. Um, so we're moving into the 1960s. Uh, you had 1965s. Most black characters, um, that were featured in comic books were, were uh, supporting characters at this time. So you've got uh, Gabe Jones, who was in Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, which you guys might remember from the Captain America movie. Uh, you've got Joe Robertson, who I, I feel like every single like newspaper man in, in Marvel smokes a cigar or a pipe. I don't know what that's about. It seems really dangerous because you're working with newspapers, whatever. Um, <laughs> that's just my opinion. Um, and then there's also 1965's Lobo, uh, which is from Dell Comics, which is fascinating because it's, it's about this freed slave, uh, like wealthy, well-spoken, educated cowboy Avenger guy. It's, it's like, it's so interesting because it, it reeks of respectability politics in it that this guy, um, he's so well-spoken even though it's like, but how? And he's so wealthy and you're like, but when? And yet, <laughs> um, and he um, doesn't kill a lot of, of white people and it's just like, but why not? <laughs> so, <laughs> for the time period, I feel like most of his villains will be white people, but whatever. Um, Lobo is <laughs> really fascinating. It's like, it's like Django, kind of, sort of, like the predecessor to Django. Uh, 
Um, but all of that changed in 1966. Can anybody guess what happens in 1966? Black Panther. Black Panther. Boom! Look at that. Fantastic Four, Black Panther appears, right? Originally titled, also, I shit you not, Coal Tiger. I know! What a terrible name. <laughs> Originally called Coal Tiger. <laughs> See, this, this is my favorite trivia, because it's so messed up. Um, black Panther was the first black superhero in mainstream American comics, debuting in number 54 of the Fantastic, number 52 of the Fantastic Four in July 1966. Cold Tiger is such a terrible name. Oh my god. The thing is, though, is that they keep Cold Tiger. So there's like, there's, I can't remember what issue it is, but in Black Panther, they reference like the, the legacy of Black Panthers, and one of them is the Cold Tiger, and it's wild. <laughs> All right, so in 1969, you have the Falcon, uh, which, first of all, let's, can we just all pay attention to these outfits that they're wearing? Because these, these, <laughs> these outfits are, like, amazing. All right, so Falcon looks lit. Uh, you, have, <laughs> you have Black Racer, who's just like a guy on skis. Um, you got Black Goliath. So also, what you also notice is that they were just like, what should we call these guys? I don't know. Black something. And, then black. <laughs> and they just had, had titles, and they just pulled out, yeah, Black Goliath. Great, super. We'll do that one. Uh, there will be no superheroes starring in their own mainstream comics until Luke Cage, Hero for Hire from Marvel in 1972. Up to this time, though, there have been little to none representation of black women in comics. Seen as the wives, the maids, or the random tribal princesses in comics, black women were largely invisible as characters and as superheroes, which changed in 1975's Giant Size X-Men Volume 1, Who Is It? And the church says, Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Storm was the first black female superhero depicted in a major comic book. Now, her history is also problematic. Um, even though Storm is like, Storm was the first superhero that I ever loved, the first superhero that I ever fell in love with, uh, the person who is at fault for why I'm not wealthier today. Um, but at the same time, she's, a, she's worshiped uh, in a tribe in Africa as a goddess, as a, as a weather goddess, and uh, is found uh, an orphan mutant living in Africa. She was found worshipped as a goddess by a primitive tribe, rescued by her white savior. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, meant, I meant mentor, I'm sorry. Uh, Charles Xavier to become a member of the X-Men's team. Now, this has always bothered me, all right? She's worshipped as a goddess in Africa. Like, given every single thing that she wants in Africa as this, as this goddess, she's like, she has no worries, she has no problems. And like this dude, this bald dude in a wheelchair rolls up, and he's just like, hey, do you want to like kind of work like second banana to me with like a bunch of other ungrateful troubled youths? <laughs> and she's like, oh sure, yeah. Like that has always blown my mind. But I digress. Okay. <laughs> Moving on, you get DC's first black superhero with 1977's Ooh. also Black oh, Lightning and Cyborg in 1980. Check out this unitard though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why did they ever change? <laughs> this dude with the thigh highs, though? Come on! Yes! 
Yes. They both look like they're going to Studio 54. Yes. <laughs> what? Oh, they were. Yeah, it looks yeah. kinky, honestly. I'm going to tell you that. <laughs> um, 1993, artist Dwayne McDuffie, Dennis Cowan, uh, Michael Davis, and Derek T. Dingle, and Christopher Priest started their own company focused on narratives not told by mainstream comics. What's the name of this? Oh, my people. Yes. Set in the uh, alternative Dakotaverse, a fictional Midwestern city of Dakota, not in the DC continuity, even though nowadays it's it's one of the other Earths. It's like Earth M. Yeah, of course. Um, published under DC, featuring the work of several well-known and acclaimed creators. Their books had a distinct look and appealed to more diverse and urban audience. Some of the better uh, uh, titles under Milestone, Static Shock, which was a dope comic book when I was a kid and a dope TV show when I was a kid. Um, also, Hardware's Midriff, looking real flossy. Yes. Uh, published through DC, Milestone uh, retained the copyright of their properties and had the final say in all the merchandising and licensing deals, which I think is remarkable for that day. I think we'll hold all questions in the end. Um, but nowadays, you've got more representation that's going on um, uh, visually that's happening. You've got, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll them up. Everybody shout them out. Who's this? Yes. 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 Valkyrie. Yes. Yes. All right, that was good. I'll give it to you. Whether or not you like them or not, that's not the question. All right. In 2016, Netflix premiered a television series about Luke Cage, Marvel's super-powered, indestructible hero. In the show, Luke wears a hoodie. This was an homage to the infamous image of Trayvon Martin, a black teenager murdered in 2012. The image of a man impervious to bullets, protecting those most vulnerable in their communities was a powerful message to the black community. The hope and dream that many have to be able to walk around unafraid of violence, breaking through every barrier set in front of them was, a was, very, was very strong in 2016. Luke Cage became more than the strong man of his origin and to an icon of the modern era, a figure that embodies all it is to be American in this day and age. Falsely imprisoned, experimented on, assaulted countless times, made to be a boogeyman, and yet still fighting for what is right and good. And no matter how many people try to marginalize you, that Black Lives Matter, which I think is a really powerful kind of an image. And that's pretty much the history of black superheroes up to the modern era. And I think that we still have time to go into questions and answers. questions of you guys but then there's also a mic that's happening up there so if you guys want to line up if anybody has any sort of questions um, as long as it could be like a question or like a real ass like comment not like how you feel about midriffs and stuff like that but like like something that's like really something that we can actually respond to um, all right ooh, ooh, sorry that was me I'm sorry all right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you. All right. So um, the first question that I want to ask the panelists 
is um, what was the what was the earliest memory that you have of a superhero that made you see that that made you connect to superheroes? Who was the the first superhero that you saw yourself as or in? Do they have to be a hero? No. Um, everyone says Storm, and that was the first superhero for me. But I would say, and I don't know where I was, I'm actually too young to have seen the original series, but I saw Eartha Kitt as Catwoman. And that was the real first, well that was the first time I saw someone in a costume. I'm like, what the hell is that? But she was fine, like she was, like, she was just beautiful and she was commanding and just the way she was talking to people any old type of way, I was just like, oh, that's her kindred spirit. But, um, but, but no, but not my bad me. But no, she, just just her her regalness and the fact that she was the first person that I saw, the first superhero slash villain, but the first person that was commanding and present, and that meant a lot because I didn't see any black women particularly in that scene anywhere on TV in any capacity. So it, I just gravitated towards her immediately, and, and because of her, like I'm a huge Catwoman fan now. Yeah. Um, again, not comics, but um, Star Trek, uh, the original. Because uh, mm -hmm. yeah. um, I was a big um, science fiction nerd growing up, and um, I'm probably a little bit older than Tatiana, dating myself. But they used to show reruns. Um, after hours when I shouldn't have been up. Um, and I would watch the show, and she was just doing her thing. She was smart. She knew how to command a ship, and she wouldn't let Captain Kirk talk to her any kind of way. Um, you know, she was respected by the smartest person on the ship, which was Spock, which I appreciated. Um, and even, you know, Michelle Nichols in, in her uh, private life, who at one point was like, you know, I'm done with people and they mess and, you know, she understood, you know, after she spoke with Martin Luther King, she understood that her place, she had a greater purpose, that it was more than just the role, it was about representation and um, and the idea that Jean Rottenberry gave, you know, gave her that, that sort of opportunity and didn't want it any other way, so yeah. So I don't want to repeat your answer, so I'm not. Um, but you can, man. You have your own reasons. Um, kind of in a different vein, and also not a comic book, Samus. Um, because I was never, I'm never going to be regal. Like, if you know me, I, draw, I will spill something on myself during this panel. Like, I was, I'm never going to be anybody as sexy or in high heels or sultry, but like, you, I can fuck some shit up. Like, and I'm, I'm good. And then she was just, or Samus was amazing. And it was amazing to watch my brother, brothers play the game and to play with them. And then at the end, when it's revealed, and they were like, what the what? And I was like, I told you. Like, and I felt so validated. And that felt really good and I don't think and I think for me the part that she was covered head to toe much like uh, Judgment Day you don't get to see who that person is and then you're already invested in them by the time the identity is revealed and I think that also is kind of repeated if we can jump back into comic books um, I don't know the issue but I'm sure someone can shout it out I'm looking directly at my friends um, when Miles Morales's mask is ripped and then we see his skin shine through and then all of a sudden it changes everything. So for me, Samus was that person. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask, do you think uh, Stanley gets too much credit for 
putting in diversity and blackness in the comic book? Uh, Cold Tiger. Just want to throw that word. Saying that was under his watch, but the panelists, what do you think? I'm, I'm, just hearing Solange in my head for us by us. That's my preference in everything. I'm rooting for everybody black. Publishers, writers, illustrators. I don't think he gets too much credit. I don't think other creators get enough credit. I think I, I don't. I'm not really about taking shine away from where shine is deserved. I still think Stan Lee and and um, Jack Kirby and all those people still deserve all that because they did in fact bring in, in Cold Tiger notwithstanding. But <laughs> I think more focus needs to be paid attention and 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 uplift people who are people of color who are creators. So I, I prefer it if we say, look, who do we need to bring up? Who do we need to, to shine a light on? Yeah, we could shout out names, man. Shout out names right now. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so it, it sounds like there really wasn't like a character that was exactly you. I mean, because there's like, if, if you are looking for like a white superhero, you find like, there's like a there's a white moody superhero. There's a there's a nerdy superhero. There's uh, there's like a, a rich tech guy. There's a poor tech guy. Like there's so many different kinds. But as like black people, we really have like just the black person who shines in, in comics. As like sort of like oh here you go brown people here's Falcon like there there you go be happy. Um, I wonder, because when I went to go see the, the Captain America Civil War, I was going to the audience uh, and there were two uh, black boys who were dressed up like Falcon, and uh, I, got, I got real misty-eyed, I got real teary, I'm dead inside so I didn't cry, um, but I did see it and I did note it, um, but, and I thought, how, how is it to grow up? seeing yourself how is it to grow up and how do you affect how do you think the effect of growing up with so many different kinds of black superheroes on TV affects kids black and also non-black kids as well okay so I um, I try to let you know my niece who's 10 I try to let her have fun but in my you know in my head I'm sitting there like you know visibility doesn't mean proper representation mm -hmm. but I'm like that's something she'll learn as she gets older I'm gonna let her have a good time with this now um, but for myself as I saw you know I, I would watch things as a kid and be like wow you know she's black and that's wonderful and then I watch it now and I'm like what the, what the hell I'm like I you know the 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 sort of portrayals I think things are getting better in terms of visibility but now we have to work on how they're represented because Sometimes I wonder, it, you know, what it, what's what, what are we losing? Because we're we're there and we've shown up, but what are we doing? And how are we being represented? And I, and I and I sometimes struggle with that because I guess sometimes it's good to just be seen, but you want you want to be seen and and right. Um, and that's what I struggle with when I look at the younger generation. I'm like, do I really burst the bubble and let them know so they know early, or should I just let them have fun? So for now, I let, I let my niece have a little bit of, of fun. I, it's, it's something that I still struggle with. If any of you have advice, I'd gladly take it. <laughs> I have some advice. I think it's fine to um, let them enjoy what's happening now, but also still educate them. Like, introduce all the the artwork, the artists, the people behind the scenes, and also the characters that, that they should be you know what? I she read Kindred. Yes. How old is she? She's ten. <laughs> oh. 
Wow, um, that's a heavy book. Actually, which I guess I should give my niece more credit. Yeah. Because she read the whole book in a day, um, which I was shocked. Um, and then we talked about Octavia Butler because she didn't know Octavia yeah. Butler was black. Yes. Um, so I, I think she has an idea, but we haven't just gone in depth there yet. I, I should mention yeah. that. Okay, well, okay, so let me back up. Give her more credit first. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. I should give the younger generation more credit because I think they're, they, they notice, they may not just know how to express what they see. Um, also, they're, they're growing up with a fundamentally different reality than we had, right? Yeah. So I have three kids. They've never lived in a world that didn't have a black president. And that's fun. That's a, I, can't, I cannot imagine that because I did not think I would see it. So whenever I'm thinking about what kind of media I allow my children to consume or what kind of media I bring into my house, I have to start kind of from there that our worldviews are so drastically different that there are things that they take for granted that I literally thought I would die without seeing. So for Halloween, there are choices that they have. They have characters that, that they can identify with. Um, they can be Doc McStuffins. They can be, um, who's from Avalor? That imaginary place that is all Elena. Elena. Thank you. Um, they, can, they have characters that they can in some way relate to, which, is diff which are also child appropriate, right? Because it's different to say, I'm a five-year-old, let me go be Catwoman, when a lot, like, <laughs> I love Eartha Kitt, but also, she was that was so that was some grown woman shit. Like and that's okay. Like, like I'm I'm compromised for what? Like I'm okay with it, but I mean that's a different reality that they have. So I think in terms of like when we're thinking about media and when we're thinking about what is available to them, we have to we have to keep constantly raising the bar but also acknowledge the work that like you said let, the sh let people have their shine. People have done really hard work so that those characters are available to my kids. And mm -hmm. I'm very appreciative of that, even though I st we still have to push forward, even though like now we're in the room, now we're in the comic book, now we're on the show, now maybe there's more than one of us. Now maybe we won't die in, in episode two. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like now that that's there, now how can we become, how can there be more of us? How can we be better represented? Maintain the staying power. Not even, fuck maintaining. I want more. More. Yeah. I want it all, right. <laughs> Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Brandon, um, and uh, I have a question for the beautiful ladies on the panel, specifically Tatiana, because I am a consistent Bambrose listener. So um, I'm going to try to boil it down and keep it really short. Um, I work in journalism. I work in newsrooms, traditional print, newspaper. Um, and uh, the, the answer I'm kind of looking for is whether or not it's a big deal or a small deal. Um, so I'm from the Philadelphia area, but I drove up. This is my first New York Comic Con. I drove up from Nashville all the way up to New York. Um, and my brother is the first. Also, he's from Mississippi. And um, <laughs> the reason why I the reason why I mentioned that is because um, I went to school. We went to school at Florida A&M University, and I know Tatiana went to Howard. H U, so, you know, which is our uh, rival, the second H U. Um, whoa, 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 whoa! We're gonna have to sit down with that one. All right, all right. What's what's the question? Sorry. Right. So my question. Is, <laughs> Did you come here just to ask Tatiana if she was available after that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 she's I, I, so I know she's married. Um, but my question is um, more so uh, as a content creator, those who cover, we're talking about diversity and black superheroes, but as those uh, black people who in media who cover these different uh, forms of uh, media, what I realize is that a lot of my friends on the coast, whether west coast or east coast, 
were surprised that Trump won the election because they grew up in New York or LA or places where there's diversity. But as a person who lives in Tennessee, where I'm the only black person, I was not surprised. So my question is, we talk a lot about race and diversity. How important do you think it is for uh, people who cover media as far as region, for there to be uh, people in the breadbasket of America who have different views? A black person in New York and DC is gonna have different views from a black person in Iowa, which I lived in for three years, by the way. So my question to you guys on the panel is, how important is the region that you live in? And because there are two completely different views. What you see in Seattle is different than what I see in Tennessee. So my question is, how important do you think it is to have gatekeepers in the breadbasket of America? I think it's important to have gatekeepers, people of color in every region, period, in the world. And obviously, when depending on your level of, of your content creator, your media person, or you know, press whatever you are, you have the keys to bring in more people within your within the fold, right? So what we do is when we look for content creators, we take people from every part of America. We're based primarily we're based in New York, yes, but we have people in the South. We have people in Atlanta. We have people in Florida. We have people in um, Alabama. I believe someone's coming on in there. We have people in Canada. Like we 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 try to do that because it is important towards your point that you have a. a try to get an overwhelming perspective from many different fields within the uh, United States. Because exactly to your point, it's a completely different social issues, sub-social issues within those issues happening. So I think it's very important. I think um, the power of the internet and social media is that I can go to WordPress and create my own website for free. And I don't have to get validation from anyone else to do what I want to do and what I want to write about. And I think um, that that has given people of color the power to get their voices out there and get their voices heard, regardless of whatever region they're in, regardless of who um, who's in the region or whatever. Because I find, you know, now we don't have to appeal to those uh, at the executive level or those white gatekeepers who say, well, we just need one black person to write about black topics and that's it. No, we can have all types of websites like Van Bros and Black Girlers and Black Nerd Problems yeah. and we don't need anybody's validation or anything. You're either gonna read it or you're not, but it's not gonna stop me from doing what I do. Um, so I think we, we need those gatekeepers as you say, but I think they need to understand that the resources are out there for them to create their own and not have to rely on others to do that. I think it's also important to define what a gatekeeper is and, and what a good gatekeeper is. Thank now, you. I'm not talking about the people who are just standing at the door not letting anybody in or being discriminatory and things like that. I think it's important that you boost and push up people of color and then if you're speaking specifically about black people, black people, but I also think that you have to hold people to higher standards as well because there's also this battle between should we just let them in because they're black or should we also move towards lifting everyone else to another level? Right. Like you should still demand quality. You should mm -hmm. demand um, um, people to to practice their craft as well. So don't just like open the door for everybody. Like you should still help everyone to educate themselves and get on a higher level as a creator as well. So I think that's important. So a good gatekeeper doesn't just say no. A good gatekeeper is actually helping people get to to attain a higher quality. To me. Hey, 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 let me respond. So oh, yeah. I think the part of the answer to that is we're black, we're not Borg, right? right. Yeah. So regionalism is really important. And some examples that jump to mind, 
So I'm, I'm with Black Nerd Problems, and we have, our writers are spread throughout America, and I, we even have a writer from South, um, South Africa. But when Detroit, the movie came out, right? I'm from Jersey. I can't necessarily speak with authority about that movie or about that circumstance. When Moonlight came out, like I can speak to how I felt about Moonlight as a movie as a black queer woman, but I can't speak about those issues of masculinity in the same way that a black queer masculine identified person can. So having those people on staff to, to educate, not to educate just necessarily our readers, mm -hmm. but also to make sure to check me. Like we need each other and we need that sort of diversity in content creation so that we are not making the mistakes that we are coming at other people for. Yeah. Like, right. and if you can't trust the people on your team to check you, then you need a new team. Right. Absolutely. And, and the only thing I was going to tackle on, am I imagining things? Are most of the content creators and gatekeepers on the coast, or am I imagining that? I think, and, and I don't mean Chicago, Houston. I mean, like, the mm, brand. I think you might be imagining that the people of color on the coast were surprised. Yeah. I think disappointed and yeah. surprised yeah. are drastically yeah. different yeah. things. Yeah. Um, like saddened, depressed, like didn't leave my house. That's not the same as surprised. Yeah. Okay. I think that white liberals on the coast were like, yeah. 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 Oh my God, that's I don't know. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. I think maybe that's a communication issue too with who are we speaking to? What conversations were we having with other people of color and where were those conversations happening? Right. Because if I'm talking to my friends who do happen to live in Ohio or in the middle of the country, then we're having a different dialogue than if I'm only talking to people who live in Jersey or if I'm only talking to people who live in New York. And so that's where the internet comes in handy. Like, like my friends don't live in Jersey. My friend lives in my computer. That's where they live. And so I can talk to anybody anywhere and get that diversity of, of like to get more than just my narrative confirmed right, right. I think that's an important thing okay thank you thank you nice. yes oh, hi. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so my question is uh, basically you know I, as, as happy as I am to hear about <coughs> you know uh, uh, you know us being represented as heroes of color um, and and it, it growing in popularity, and not only on Netflix, but in, in, in the box office as well. Um, you know, I get a little bit of fear as well. And the fear that I have um, is that, you know, is this a step forward in representing us as heroes in a positive light? Or is this a uh, passing fad for us? Mm. And I would like to know if, if that has an email, like if you have those fears at all either. There has to be something to pass. And I don't think we're even there with the, I mean, people of color are still missing from the post-apocalypse for some reason. It's like, did, it, did the event happen and we all just got wiped out and now the white people exist? We're still missing from sci-fi. We're still missing, we're still, we're still missing from whole genres of, of entertainment and art. So when, we, when you say passing fat, it, it, I, would, um, I would say maybe if we existed in all forms, but we don't. We're still trying to break the doors down. So there's still progress happening. It's moving slowly, um, but it's happening. We may be long dust before that happens, but um, that's just the reality of the situation. Um, I think we need to focus more on not passing fads, but continuing to break those barriers down so that maybe the generation that comes after us has more to look forward to. Um, as opposed to worrying and doing a lot of worrying, which is, is normal. Um, but I think that's something that we have to sort of try to work through and um, put more, put that, redirect that energy into opening up the doors for more opportunities. Yeah. I think who are we supporting as well? 
right? If you're not giving me what I want, or if you're treating my identity as a trend or something to be capitalized, I'm not supporting you. It right. doesn't matter what hero you're putting forth. So um, I have a friend who's a, one of the editors of Black Nerd Problems, and the joke among us is if there is a black indie comic on Kickstarter, she can tell you all about it, right? <laughs> and that's real. So we can't, we won't be a trend if we vote with our dollars. Like, because we're, that's always the excuse. It didn't do as well as it should have. Or it didn't do as well as its white counterpart, so we're not gonna do another movie, we're not gonna do another issue, we're not gonna, like, you fail. You don't get, you, you can't fall up into more opportunities based on your blackness or based on being a person of color. And so, take that excuse away from people. And one of the ways to do that is to take control of creation. Because the internet exists, because Indiegogo exists, because Kickstarter exists, like, people of color are making content and since people tend to write about what they know, they're writing about other people of color. Or the heroes that they imagine are the heroes that they need, and so those heroes are people of color. So we find them and we support them, and then we prevent it from being a trend. I think, just to piggyback off that really quick, I think we also have to check ourselves internally, because I've read a couple of articles where um, there are artists of color in the artist alley who feel like, um, others who look like them pass them right by and go right to the white artist and buy their stuff and then won't stop at their table. Sure. So I think we have to um, also do uh, a bit of um, self-introspection and ask ourselves why we're not supporting the content that's there and why we just prefer to go to the, uh, to the other. Is it complicit, complacency? Is it um, just comfort? Or I, I think each individual has to examine that for themselves and figure that out. And I, I say like, I mean, I was genuinely scared when I heard about Black Panther. Like, I was very excited, you know? So I was just like, oh, shit. But at the same time, I was like, what happens if it fails? Well, is this the last chance that we get? Like, I mean, like, it, it was a fear that I had. It was the same thing when I heard about Black Lightning. I was like, okay, but why? Why are you doing this? Why do we get nice things? Because I'm so used to not getting nice things. Um, and so there, there is this anxiety, because like, I, I feel like I'm compelled to support things um, because I don't, that's all we get. You know, and I, I think that that's a real thing. And I don't, I don't think there's any sort of shame in admitting that I'm, I'm, I'm scared that sometimes it, it will be like if I, if they're not making enough money, it'll go away and I'll go back underground again. But I don't know. That, I mean, that remains to be seen. That's a fact. Yeah. Like it happens because it happens. how many times has Batman been rebooted? We got like nine Batman movies or whatever. But you know, there's some stuff out there that we I ain't seen another. So have you heard about Spawn yet? Have they redone that? Anybody? <laughs> Thank you so much. Have you written any of this history down? This is there's a whole lot of stuff here I didn't know that I as 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 a comic book reader for decades on, on end, I should have known. Uh, the early history is fascinating. Yeah. Have you put this down anywhere? Um, there's actually, there's a book coming out, um, I think it's coming out next month. Uh, man, and I cannot remember 
the name of the author. She um, she works with uh, Black Girl Nerds. Man, I cannot remember. And it's the only book I can find. Um, and I think it's just called The History of Black Superheroes. Okay. And it's coming out next month. Uh, and it's the it's the only book that I could really find. Um, but but you know, thank you for that idea because I mean, what's there there should be more. It shouldn't be that hard to find that information. Can I, so if there's also a book called Black Women in Sequence, mm, yes. um, and if you just go to the index and look at all of the resources that that author used to compile that book, it'll send you in all sorts of amazing directions in okay. terms of research. Yeah. Do you, would it be possible to take that magic computer and put all of your names up there? Because I'm not familiar with any of you. And I like to do <laughs> nice to follow. meet you. <laughs> uh, at Valerie Complex on Twitter. Yeah. And uh, at Valerie complex, complex on Twitter, one word, and um, at Valerie underscore Complex on Instagram. Okay. At real Nicole Homer. I'm not going to remember this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> let me try to type something up real quick, though. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. This is Marvel. Thank, thank you. you. Yes. Hey. Hey. Oh, hey. Oh, That's hair. Yes. Yeah. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, so if you guys can't tell, I'm Domino Woo! from the new Deadpool movie. Um, and my question is somewhat related. Um, I don't really know how to phrase the question, but like, it's just about how people react when superheroes are changed from being white to black. Let's talk about The word you're looking for is trash. Yeah. <laughs> um, but not just the reaction of like diehard fanboys that are just like about the character itself and are pissed that it just changed in any way, but just the way that like, you know, sometimes I think that they're only changing them because they're too lazy to create a new black character to put in. Yeah. Or, you know, it's just a fat, like, how, you know, it's just so that, you know, for diversity's sake, and they don't really think about the character, and I'm kind of scared that they're not going to do her justice. So, I just want to know, like, what you guys think about when they change black super, like, white superheroes into um, I have a quick question, and I'm not trying to like be an asshole or whatever. But what, what new what new books and new characters are you reading currently? Um, like right now, they've changed. Um, in like the Flash TV show, I know that they changed his sidekick from yeah. black from white to black, and Domino and and um, MJ from Spider-Man: Homecoming. They've changed from. Even though it's not really the same Mary Jane, I know that it's not the same Mary Jane. It's really not Mary Jane, it's, but it's. <laughs> 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 I was trying to not scare up the fanboys, right? Yeah. And I, I guess I asked that question about um, um, what you know, what new superheroes are because people are doing it. I think we look to the. I think in terms of comics, people look to the big two too much. Um, and rely on them to make changes when there are independent companies out there that are doing it and independent creators out there who have new stuff and no one supports it. So when people say, oh, well, you know, making new characters, you don't need to rely on DC and Marvel to create them. There are new characters that are out there. But if you're talking about in terms of within the two, uh, the two big houses, I mean, I don't have a problem with them changing, especially if the character... Um, their backstory isn't solely relying on who they are um, racially. Um, I don't see 
I don't see the I don't really see the, the difference in the change. Um, of course, um, even though I think Black Panther was once white, I think it was like. Uh, no, I mean, white guy cosplaying as Black Panther. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm gonna send you the comic. I'm gonna send you the, the panel. Um, I think it was uh, Steve Rogers who was in the costume and whatever. Yeah, that's a good old time. Okay, but um, but like where in the case of Black Panther, where you know him being from Wakanda is like sort of like central to his story. Yeah, you wouldn't you know make him him white, but you know there are other characters who's it's not you don't you know it's not indicated. It's not important as far as they uh, who they are as a race. So changing them is like well, it's just a different person. But that's just my opinion. I mean, I might say otherwise. Um, I don't. Uh, kind of to your to on, on your side of things, I don't really care if they change it a, a character from white to black, particularly when their race isn't intrinsic to their uh, their their story. Like, who cares that Michael B. Jordan was um, uh, Johnny, Storm. Johnny Storm? Like, so what? Like that. There's nothing about Johnny Storm character where he has to be white. I don't, I don't care about that. Um, but I do understand what you're saying, that you have a fear that they're just doing it to meet a quota. That doesn't really mean anything. And to that point, that's where I have to say, again, maybe what Torch Valley said, stop putting all your stock into the big two. Right. Like, seek out other people. Like, like, there's Carly Randolph. Seek out all these other people. There's Emilio Lopez. Like, there's this, and they're over in, actually, they're in Artist Alley right now. Go to Artist Alley right now and check out all the people of color that are down there. Latino, uh, uh, black, uh, everybody. Asian, they're all there. Um, uh, Chris Goodhart, he's down there too. Like, like they're, we're here. And I think that it's important to, um, that's fine to have that fear, but, but like, like start moving your stock elsewhere into other places. Put your money and your time and your attention to the other people who are doing it right. Because I think that would reduce the stress and the anxiety a lot more. So, to I guess offer maybe a third perspective, I don't necessarily have a problem with that, with the, with the change um, of white characters to black characters, but then my question is one of colorism. Why do all of the black characters look a certain way? Yeah. Um, and then I think maybe for me, that's where the pushback should be, or those are the questions that I would like to direct at the casting agents and the executives. Because um, I feel like that's a conversation that we also need to have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you so much, Dominic. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Hello, my name is Matri, and um, I'm almost 60 years old, and I was read I've been reading all these comics all my life. Um, these were magic moments in my life when I picked up a comic and saw a black man named Black Panther wearing a costume being the prince or the ruler of a country coming to America to bring justice to America at the time when we really needed it. I, was the, I had giant-sized X-Men in my hand when Storm first came on the scene. I was in front of the TV. I had a calendar when Star Trek first came on, and I saw a woman from Africa. I'd never seen a woman from Africa before. Also, there were other magic moments. You know, it's not just comics. It's comics, it's sci-fi, it's kind yeah. of fictional, heroic fantasy. Right, do you, have a, kind of, do you have a question for us? Yes, well, my question <laughs> My question is. I'm running out of time, so. We have to, I think we have to go, what, what more can we do to kind of regularize, improve, and make uh, real the image of African-American people in popular uh, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. The push has to come from all sides, and, and not and, and I say that because everyone's like, and we've said it too. Like you, I was talking to everybody here. All the people coming here, you got to support your people or do this, and, and and also don't just support blindly. Support quality and push that up. Yes. At the same time, everyone in here who considers themselves an ally, y'all got to step up too. Everyone who holds the keys, y'all got to step up too. It has to come from all sides. It has to be a collective, a collective, a collective push to getting this out there in this space. Um, yes, there's plenty of stuff that we can do independently. We can build a WordPress site, we can go put out Kickstarters and do all this other stuff, but we need help. Some of you guys are connected right to the media. Some of you guys work for New York Times in here. I don't know, I'm just saying. But some of y'all <laughs> may work for these spaces where you have a platform that you can say, you know what, I know a really good um, black woman artist that she doesn't have a platform to to show off her stuff and, and I know someone in art department maybe I can loop her in and 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 I'm, and this is for everything not just with comics like art whether it's uh, art whether it's entertainment whether it's anything like I, I think there has to be a, a, a full effort full court press to make it work to, that's what I think so this is mine is kind of let me come from left field with it um, I think that to normalize it can't just happen in the realm of media consumption. So people in the room, like if you have, if your kids go to a school, demand that there be teachers of color because yes. white people won't, got that like white people <laughs> won't buy things that have people of color on it because they don't, like I don't need black people to be humanized for me. Like we're, I'm human. Like so, like problem solved. What I need is for other people who are not black and who are not people of color to think of me as a person. And they're not going to do that until there are authority people, figures of authority in their lives that are not people that are that don't look like them. And so it's not just about media because they'll never see a fully developed character if they're not willing to purchase the title. And they're not willing to purchase the title because they don't see black people and people of color as people. So for me, it has to be more than just media consumption. It has to be a push. In from all directions, but in all arenas as well. So it has to be normalized in society. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Thanks again, uh, history. Can we download that? Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that. Uh, that on cute. my uh, Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. I'll put that up. Yes, sir. Thank you. I um, I just want to say, I actually don't really have a question. I'm make that <laughs> but nice. I also don't have a monologue. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so here's the thing. I just want to say very briefly that I've been coming to a lot of panels and I've been reading comics for a long time, way too long maybe, and I have never seen a panel with black women. And I want to thank you for giving back to me. I, I, I have seen one black woman, maybe two, yeah. but I have never seen a panel, I did not expect a panel on black superheroes to have sisters. That's, that's the all Thank thing. you. And all and that's, sisters. That's, that's all sisters. And that's, that's all I wanted to say. I, I stood in line for 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> okay, and, and my pants upside down. Please do not tell me about it. Everybody oh, I, I was says, gonna, you know what? I'm glad you said because I was gonna say it. I said no. Let me not. No, not don't. Blast. Everybody says it to me. I know. I know. I was, I was like, it's bad. Oh, okay, no. but thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, please. Yes. Star Trek is one of the only examples in the, that takes place not just in science fiction, but in the future that we as people have made it. We are alive. Like the previous commenter said, 
it is fascinating to see women of color, more than one, to mm -hmm. not just host a panel, but to speak intelligently. So my question, um, moving on in that Hypersensitive, and so when I say the word intelligently, I am not meaning it derogatively. I'm meaning that, which goes into my question: as <laughs> as people Segway. of color, yes. what can, and then as women of color, what do you think can be done? Not just in comic books, not just in media, but when it comes to people of color talking to people of color. What do you think can be done to not just diversify or uplift the conversation? Because if you look at it historically, when the Bill Cosby, the Cosby TV show came out, you had black people that thought, I don't know any black doctors, I don't know any black lawyers, that's not real. When, he, when Barack Obama made his announcement for running, a lot of black people asked, is he black enough? I don't know any black people. So what do you think can be done from your points of view that would increase the ability for black people to talk to each other in a way that's diverse, that's interesting, that's upbuilding. Can, can well, I answer can I answer this first? Mm -hmm. So I, I think that I, I think this is really interesting. One is because um, uh, I, I grew up as one of those kids that um, uh, like my, my nickname in school was coconut. Uh, which I always thought was really cute until uh, the kids told me that the reason why they called me Coconut was because I was white on the inside. Uh, and then I was like, oh, that's so cute, I still like it. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I think that I think that having uh, having discourse, like I didn't learn the language of how to talk about comic books for a really long time, right? So I, I knew that I liked comic books, but I didn't know how to speak about comic books in a, in a way that sort of like communicated what my ideas were, right? Like this idea of like having the language um, of like what representation means, what what it means um, uh, to to um, what are the different kind of tropes, different kind of things like that. I didn't have that for a really long time, and I think that's because um, the information, the discourse happens with sort of in intelligentsia, sort of white critics of comic books. But there is no sort of like um, uh, there is no sort of door where black people are also l allowed into those conversations. You know, there's college courses about comic books. Um, I've been to quite a few of them. There's not a lot of black people in those college courses. They're not led by black people at all. Um, I, I think that this idea of what is an intelligent discourse is made up and manufactured by people that are not um, people of color. And I think it's this way of gatekeeping the language. It's this way of saying, well, if you can't vocalize exactly what you mean about comic books, you're not intelligent about it. And I think that that is something that needs to be challenged and needs to be changed. And, and just because of the fact that I didn't know how to speak about comic books doesn't mean that I was any less intelligent about comic books at all. I just had to learn how to how to speak in a room full of people where everybody could understand my ideas. Um, that didn't mean that I was any less intelligent about it, though. So 
yeah, it's just it's just another sort of repertoire. Like I know crappy I know crappy Japanese, I know crappy French, I know, but I I'm fluent in comic books. <laughs> and so that that's a language that I can speak now. Can so, I can I yeah. add to that? I think we get stuck in this idea of the medium is the message. And so we expect intelligent discourse to happen inside of a college classroom or to happen inside of a classroom at all. But like Twitter is proof of benevolent God, right? So we have hashtags. We, ha we can have the conversation as much as we want with as many people as we want from varying backgrounds. So we did, um, at Black Nerd Problems, we did a book club and we had a conversation about a book with strangers on the internet for an hour where we discussed representation and where we discussed what is it, what is an unapologetic female protagonist look like. And that didn't happen inside a college classroom, but like I'm a college professor. That is exactly the kind of thing that does happen in a college classroom. But just because it happens on Twitter doesn't make it any more or less valuable, right? And I think that's the kind of thing that we need to, to rid ourselves of, that intelligent conversation has a time and a place. Like, Twitter is, is always the right time and always the right place for whatever you're looking to get into. Right? Or, or a specific form. Yeah. There's no specific form. You can have a teleconversation in many different ways. Yeah, different forms. Different uh, languages of different, and not just, I don't mean like literal Spanish or English. No, I mean like different people speak differently, especially when you're from different places. We talk about that regionally. Like regionally people may not, I'm from New York, I'm from Brooklyn. Some of the stuff I say, they're like, girl, I don't know, oh yeah, what's up? Um, <laughs> some of the stuff, they're like, girl, what you talking about? Like, you know, they don't, they, they literally don't understand where I'm coming from because they don't speak in that manner, you know? So, so you have to be open to that, that just because you guys don't understand that maybe the inflections or the tones you're using doesn't mean it's any less intelligent. Right, I'm, look, I'm from the Bronx, you know what I'm saying? What so, up? Yeah. I, 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 I can keep it to you any way you want. And it ain't about the cold switching, it's just about you gotta meet people where they at. Like my homies, my homies, um, you know, they, I got them in the Japanese animation, they get a little shit. But, <laughs> but I, you, know, I, you know, I met them where they were at, and was like, okay, you need to watch this thing called Akira, and you know, just look, you know, watch a bunch of people, you know, dudes sit down and scream and holler, and oh my God, I love it, I love it. You, be you know, because you just meet people where they're at. And it doesn't mean, you know, whatever language, like you guys said, whatever language you use, it doesn't matter, as long as we use a universal language of love and, and caring about the topic that's at hand, then I think that that's what's more important. Um, what you learn is more important from people than how um, they speak to you uh, or, um, you know, the language that they use. I don't have to always use big words to get my fucking point for us, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, I, I, I can give it to you any way you want. So, um, and I curse a lot. It may not be, <laughs> be ladylike, but you're going to get the point. And so you're going to get this work with the point. And that's what matters. And on that note, thank you for so much. Thank you. Really, I think that was a really interesting question. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, and I think that we're out of time. I'm so sorry. Okay, but we're all gonna be in the con, so if you if you see us like out on these streets, if you wanna buy me another bagel, I would love that. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you guys so much for being here.
The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax. Various episodes are edited by Jamie Brodnax, M.R. Daniel, and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Art19, and Spotify. That was a HeadGum Podcast.